Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. First Corinthians chapter 1. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Let's look in verse number 1. We have started a series entitled, or titled I should say, that's always one of the heirs that's easily made, titled Faith in Action, Building God's Kingdom in Challenging Times. It's subtitled here this morning, The Framework of Authority. And so I was planning, just because of the nature of the sermon, I was planning on uh, wearing my Britney Spears uh, microphone, uh, just in case I had to move around a little bit, but I forgot it because I really don't like to wear it. And the only reason why we ever wear it is because we record the sermons and we put them online, and a few people do listen, and uh, so it's not uh, a huge uh, following, but we have a few hundred that listen uh, regularly, and so anyway, we put it online. So anyway, if I walk away from the mic, I apologize for that this morning. I usually don't anyway. Uh, but we'll see what happens here today. Verse number one, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord and it is eternally true. As I said Wednesday evening, the road of reconstruction is a long one due to the devastating deconstruction that has taken place in Western civilization. And we live in very chaotic times and we live in perilous times and it has completely deconstructed Western civilization, and one of my duties as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to awaken you to this fact and to call you to a renewal to the Christian faith in your life, your family, in our church, and in our community. Now, there is a lot going on in the world, and they are things that should have our attention. So listen closely. I'm not calling you to hide your head in the sand. They are things that need our attention. But the thing that should most have our attention is what is going on right here, right now at Holy Trinity Reformed Church. There is no other thing going on in any part of the world that's more important than this. Not because we're more important than any other person in the world, but this is our Jerusalem. 
This is our responsibility. This is our work. This is where we live. And so this is our focus. And that is the purpose of this series of messages because if we do not put faith into action, first of all, it is vain, empty, and dead. Because faith without works is dead. It doesn't have any meaning. It doesn't have any purpose. And yet today we continue in our refusal to believe this is where we are at currently. But it is where we are at. We are in a state of deadness. We are in a state of deconstruction. We are living in the days, in these days of apostasy. There's been other days of apostasy before. There'll be other days of apostasy to come. But we live in days of apostasy. And so that's where we're at. And we have to admit it. We have to acknowledge this fact. That we have been completely deconstructed and there's barely any debris left of practicing Christianity that is remaining. And we must become committed to the renewal of the Christian faith. That's the problem with conservatism in politics. They think that conservatism, they think that uh, freedom and liberty exists in and of itself. But it doesn't. You can't have it without Christianity. Our forefathers declared such, and it is proving itself to be true. Now, this commitment to the renewal of Christianity personally began for me 27 years ago, even though I was kind of born into it, and I'm 54 years old. It became something more tangible to me as I entered pastor's college, but I was completely unprepared for the reality of the situation and the work. Although throughout this whole process, I have continued to be unprepared and uh, ignorant uh, for the situation and the work, we began in earnest and ignorance 27 years ago, and basically my ministry can be summarized as an old dog trying to learn new tricks at this stage, and now trying to convince and lead other old dogs to learn new tricks. Now, please don't read anything into that specific statement, the specific terms that, were, that was used. It's just a play on an old saying, right? Everybody's heard the old saying. But I also acknowledge another old saying, which is, it's never too late to mend, meaning you're never too old to change your ways. So I began trying to understand our situation in this chaotic age my whole life and learn what should be done to remedy it. And we have been doing the same together for the last 10 years here at Holy Trinity Reformed Church. Although we are still lacking when it comes to understanding and remedy, we have at least awakened to the despair of our situation. Simply put, that we are deconstructed. Which is why we are going to do this survey of First and Second Corinthians. Here... In the first century Corinthian church, we have a very disoriented, disorderly, and disobedient church living in a completely pagan world. Offhand, I would say that that sounds, smells, and looks like us. All right? Disoriented, disorderly, and disobedient church in a completely pagan society. 
So just as Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 10 of his first letter, pointing them to the examples of the Old Testament saints, saying in verse number 10, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come. Therefore, in this series, we are going to be looking back to the Corinthians, serving as our examples, while also considering the examples that Paul directed them to consider, understanding that all these things, both the Old and New Testament examples, were written for our admonition, for our instruction, for our example. Why? Because we were going to live in times like them. And they were given as an example on how we should live. And so in the midst of these considerations, remembering the warning and promise God, or that Paul gave to the Corinthian church in verses 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands, this is after he gave those examples for their admonition, and then he says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Is the word of God true? Then that is true for 2013 just as much as it was true for Moses and the Israelites in Egypt and just as true as it was for the Corinthians in the first century. This promise, just as all other promises in Scripture, it is not a call to let go and let God. The promises are always connected with commands that we are to do in faith. So we have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. 2013, all the things that are going on, all the trials, temptations, tribulations, all the things that are happening in your life, in your community, and throughout the world. We have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this, and we have been brought to this time in the kingdom to do something. God works through his people using the means that he has given to them, and this is where we get all confused, and end up in no effort on one side or fleshly effort on the other side, all of which is insufficient. The means that God has given to us, they are sufficient. The means that God has given to us, they are supernatural. Yes, they are ordinary things, but they are supernatural because God takes the ordinary, which includes you, by the way. God takes the ordinary and through his power, which is supernatural, makes them sufficient for his will and good pleasure to be accomplished. So regardless whether they are promises or means, we are to respond in faith. The faith to believe and the faith to do. And we don't get to pick and choose since believing the promises and doing that which belongs to the promises both belong to faith, true faith. And this is the reason why faith without works is dead. 
What good is it to profess faith in a promise if the faith does not cause you to act on that promise? That is not faith. That is a false faith. That is lip service. That's being a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word. And yet we live by our feelings rather than live in faith. And it's interesting that we are commanded to believe and commanded to act on that belief based upon the promises of God. God's promises require a response. God's promises require faith and the works of faith. So what is going on here or what is not going on here in this place at this time is a watershed moment. This is our make or break moment. This is our choose ye this day moment. This is our Christ or chaos decision. This is our narrow way or broad way moment of truth. Are we going to be renewed in the faith? Are we going to become true disciples of Jesus Christ? Or are we going to continue in nominal cultural Christianity that is leading us to hell And that continues to deconstruct and deny the faith once delivered to the saints. Now, immediately, some may think that this is where some grand philosophical discussion begins. Or where there is some mystical knowledge that has never been imparted before to give us some new keys to open some new door. Or maybe some extraordinary manifestation of the miraculous. But it is none of those things. It is the simple truths of the faith that we have denied and continue to deny for a multitude of reasons today. And regardless of the reasons, the reality is that we are no longer practicing Christians. I know that is a hard message, but it is the absolute truth. We have been completely deconstructed in the church and throughout our culture from where we began As a Christian people in a Christian nation, then when we consider Western civilization and all that was built upon the Reformation, we have to say we are now completely deconstructed. Europe is no longer Christian. America is no longer Christian. And the saddest part in the discussion is that in most cases, the church is no longer Christian. Yes, it's a hard message, but it is the truth. We have been, and the whole of Christianity is being deconstructed, and our only hope is the renewal of the ancient faith once delivered to the saints. The ancient faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so last week we began setting the context uh, for this series And this week is actually more of the same in that we need to set the context of God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, the apostolic order, and the church both universally and locally. When Paul writes here in our text that he's called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and then he says to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, those words mean something. They have meaning. 
this, there is a context and a meaning that is beginning here in this letter right from the start. They're not just written to fill up the page. They're not throwaway words. Words to just simply be discarded because they're without meaning or merit or context. They are the very words of God given to us. As Proverbs says, every word of God is pure. And Paul says in 2 Timothy, all scripture, every word is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and perfectly equipped for every good work. And then the Apostle John says, whoever keeps his word... Truly the love of God is perfected in him, and by this we know that we are in him. Through the word, every word, all scripture. First of all, notice there is Paul the Apostle here in our text. Jesus Christ, God, Sosthenes, the church of God at Corinth, with implication that there is the church of God elsewhere by the statement with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. So you have God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son who is Lord. You have the church of God, the church of God in a specific place and also the church of God in every place. And then you have the individual workers within the universal church of God. So what is implied here in our text is authority. The authority of God the Father, Jesus Christ, the apostles, and the church. This is where it all begins. Paul writing to a disoriented, disobedient church in Corinth, living in a pagan world, and he begins with the presupposition and the implication of authority, authority from God the Father, Jesus Christ, the apostles, and the church, universally. Isn't this what we find in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19? When Paul's writing and saying, hey, you Gentiles, listen. You're no longer strangers and foreigners. You're fellow citizens with the, all the saints and members of the household of God. And you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. Who's he talking about? The church. And he's also talking about authority. Authority from God, Jesus Christ, the apostles, and then the church. Now, if we don't, first of all, return to the authority of God through Jesus Christ commissioned to his apostles and exercised by the church, we're in trouble. And I want to tell you right now, there is no chance, not a snowball's chance, of renewing and rebuilding the church. We find this authority in Ephesians 4. About there being one Lord, one, excuse me, one body and one spirit. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And it is that God who gave 
some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. You see, this is authority. And what is desperately needed, if we are going to be able to move forward, just as with the Corinthians, for them to have moved forward to maturity in the faith, is for us the renewal of authority. For them, he was writing to them in in submission to that authority. Yes, they had a lot of problems, but they were submitted to that authority. Today we have a lot of problems and we are compounding the problems even further because we are not submitted to that authority. Now as you watch different events unfold in the world, it might be that this renewal and rebuilding might come from a different source. But I'm talking about us. We. I have concern for your soul. And my soul. And this is the work that is before us here. This is our work. Yes, there might be some great things going on here, there, and yonder. But I'm talking about us. My concern is right here in this church and right now in this time. And we may get all excited when we see some other sector speak. Or do something that is hopeful or more in line with the truth. But I'm not there. I'm here. Sure. I am happy. And I'll use the most extreme example for Protestants. And even more so for Baptists, right? I am happy that there is presently opposition among Roman Catholics against the anti-Pope. That antichrist that is sitting in the synagogue of Satan in the Roman Vatican. But I am more concerned about the antichrist and the anti-Christian heresies among us. There's a lot of shaking going on in the world today and I will oppose evil and promote good regardless of where the evil resides and regardless of the group from which there is good. So in some sense, I am supportive of the good things that might come from a renegade Catholic priest. Because that's where we all began, right? If you're a Protestant, that's where you all began with a renegade Catholic priest called Martin Luther. That's why you are what you are today. So when I see another renegade Catholic priest, I have to say amen. So yes, I am also opposed to George Mario Bergoglio, whom some call Francis, just as we were also opposed to Vatican II. So with the state of vacanists, That's what they're called, those Catholics who oppose Vatican II. It's like, yeah, I'm I'm all for you. I oppose Vatican II as well. But I do want you to know that I also oppose Vatican I. You all realize that the veneration of Mary, the worship of Mary, did not come, did not become dogma until 1854. Did 
Did you know that the infallibility of the Pope did not become established until 1869 and 1870? Before then, there wasn't the infallibility of the Pope. There was a Pope, but he was not infallible. Interesting, right? That's why it came around in Vatican I. So yes, I am opposed to these modern heresies, but when but, but at the same time, we were opposed to the heresies and abuses of the Roman Church back in 1570. Nevertheless, I am pre- pleasantly, yes. Pleasantly surprised at the current rumblings of resistance against the Vatican among a few bishops, like Bishop Strickland in Texas. All I want to say to him is charge! Go! Stand firm! He was visited by the Vatican Commission. They came to tone him down and put him in his place. And he came out and said, hey, this is what's going on. But I am not going to back down. I am going to continue to proclaim the truth. Amen, right? May God raise up some Protestants willing to suffer all for truth. So a few bishops, a lot of priests, many of them who are being canceled, by the way, by the Vatican. They're being removed. They're not doing anything about the child molesters, but they are doing something about the priests who are not willing to go with the new woke order. And many more laymen. And they are energized and on fire. The reason why I'm telling you this is is to try to put us to shame. They are on fire, man. And that's why their movement is growing. And although the Roman church as a whole is still apostate, there has been an awakening to some key doctrines and practices in the very lower ranks of the Roman church. Because they have begun to take the faith seriously. But my question is, what about us Protestants? What about us Baptists? Or you Methodists or Presbyterians or whatever you may be. What about us? And so for me to be faithful, I must confront our heresies and apostasies and call us to take our faith seriously and to revive our devotion to the teachings of Jesus Christ and his apostles and the fellowship of the church, to prayer, to giving, to service, and to evangelism. I must confront our, and notice I'm using the words we and our in the plural, meaning me and you, I must confront our antichrist disobedience because antichrist is that which is opposed to Christ. Think 
think about that. Don't just mindlessly let the words run off of your head like water. Think about that. To be antichrist, to be an antichrist is to be opposed to Christ. And if we are not continuing in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, if we are not continuing in the faithful observance of the sacraments, if we are not continuing in word, sacrament, and prayer, if we are not continuing in the financial support of the church, if we are not continuing in service to Christ and his church, if we are not continuing in the evangelization of the world, then we are against Christ. This is where Protestants need to wake up in America. If we're not for him, we're against him. Not this superficial stuff like, yeah, praise Jesus. We're going to make our little religious statements kind of like they used to do in the old days, which was always kind of funny, you know, at some of these honky-tonk type of events, you know, and you have all the stuff going on, all the uh, sinful aspects going on. But then it was time to do a religious song. And everybody would take off their hat and they would sing some song about Jesus. And then it was back to the wild party and fornication and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's kind of where we're at in the church, right? Yeah, we want to say, it's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm for Jesus. If you're for Jesus, then that means you're working on his behalf and doing what he said, right? We're continuing in the things that he has commanded. But no, that's not the case. You see, we're opposed to him. We're opposing him as prophet, priest, and king by not being obedient to that which he has said. We are opposing, resisting, and rebelling against his lordship. And to resist the lordship of Jesus Christ is a damning thing. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Paul writing to the Corinthians, remember, this disoriented, disobedient church in a pagan world. He says, therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed. And no one can say Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So let me put this in plain English for us so that way we can make sure that we understand it. Paul is saying here that no man, no one can be speaking by the Spirit of God who says, Jesus be damned. Right? We have to devote our lives to Jesus Christ. We have to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. And we sit back and like, Jesus be damned. We have to give our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. And we sit back and say, 
Jesus be damned. Maybe not by words, but by attitude and actions. And notice what he says, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What is the proof of the Holy Spirit? The Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently. And immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. And so while the Roman church has committed a great evil in the tyranny of the Vatican, Protestants have committed a great evil in tyranny, a great evil in the tyranny of the self. The Pope in Rome denies the lordship of Jesus Christ, and all the little popes in Protestant churches deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. And right now, the traditional Roman Catholics are positioned in a better place than we are at the moment because it is easier to cut off the head of one tyrant than it is to cut off the head of three million tyrants. We're in a bad state. You see, in both cases, the tyrants are antichrist and opposed to the authority of God, but there are greater and lesser degrees of difficulty, and we are facing a high degree of difficulty at the present. As Protestants, we are not in a good place. We are a stiff-necked and rebellious people, and until we are willing to confess our sins and truly repent in a change of heart and a change of direction, there is nothing good to prophesy to us. Throughout the numerous statements of this kind that we find from Paul, throughout his writings, and throughout other epistles, and throughout the whole word of God, is authority that comes from God. So let's first consider the source of all authority, which is God the Father, the Creator. And we're only going to cover one of these things this morning, because we only have a few minutes left. But notice... Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. This presupposes the authority of God in what Paul is going to command them and the disposition of the Corinthian church. And this makes all the difference. Yes, the Corinthian church had a lot of issues and a lot of problems, right? But you know what led them in a good place? Their disposition of humility and surrender. Yeah, you can do something with a sinner who knows that he's a sinner and he, in humility, has the disposition of, of, of repentance and has the disposition of surrender. 
But you can take the person who has everything all buttoned up, who watches their P's and Q's, and who is defiant against authority. And you cannot do anything with them. You see, this issue of authority is so all-important. See, we need to understand that when Paul says that he was writing to them as an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, that the words that he was writing were not to be debated. They were not to be ignored. They were to be surrendered to. This thing of Lord of, of authority is very important. So the way he starts in his second letter, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the church. You see, this is real authority. He is, first of all, declaring that what he is saying is real authority because it comes from the ultimate authority who is God, the creator of all things, the one who is sovereign over all things. And therefore, it is to be obeyed. And the reason is this. Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter 6 and verse 20, he tells them, Listen, you are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Your spirit and your body does not belong to you if you're a Christian. It belongs to God. It belongs to Jesus Christ. It belongs to the apostles. It belongs to the church. Your body is not your own. It belongs to God. Your spirit is not your own. It belongs to God. He is almighty. And though he may be doubted, God is a real power to contend with. Just ask the powerful King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire. In Daniel chapter 4, it talks about how Nebuchadnezzar was lifted up in pride and he was like, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? And so this is the message that came from the Lord to Nebuchadnezzar. It says, the kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. You lift it up in pride, Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to bring you down until you recognize, and then you're able to know that it is the Lord, not you. It's 
the Most High who rules. And at that very moment, it says basically that Nebuchadnezzar went mad and was living like a beast. He went crazy. And it says that it came to the end of that time that Nebuchadnezzar lifted up his eyes to heaven and his understanding returned to him. When did his understanding return to him? When he looked up to heaven. You see, he, he before thought that he was looking down from heaven. He was like Lucifer, lifted up in his pride. And so when he looked up to heaven, his understanding returned to him, and he blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And so his sanity came back to him when he realized that he was the creature and not the creator. When he realized that he was the servant and not the master. When he realized that he was the one who was to obey and not the one to command. When he realized that God was his ruler and not his own self. And that's what he says. When he was praising the king of heaven, he says that he puts down those who walk in pride. America, you're coming down. Americans, you're going down. You've walked in your pride, and now it's time to be humbled. Church, we have walked in our pride, and now it's time to be humbled. Our only hope is to look up to heaven. Just as the Israelites looked up at the brass serpent in the wilderness, as we are told by that example that Jesus Christ was going to be lifted up just in that same manner and we are to look up to him. That's our only hope. Read Romans chapter 1 about those who are lifted up in pride and what the end result is and it is exactly what we are seeing. Paul says, because they knew God but did not glorify him as God, and because they weren't thankful, but because they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkness, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for that which is against nature. Likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one for another men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which were not fitting 
being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Yeah, that kind of looks... Smells and sounds like us. And then Paul says, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Ask yourself this question this morning. And ask those in the Old Testament, who came into a covenantal relationship with God and then broke that covenant. Ask them what the results are. In Deuteronomy 28, we find 14 verses of blessing for those who follow the Lord and are obedient to him. We find 53 verses of curses upon those who refuse to keep their vows, upon those who break the covenant. Just ask Sodom and Gomorrah. Just ask Pharaoh and Egypt. Just ask the Israelites who refuse to obey God and enter the promised land. Just ask Rehoboam. Just ask all the wicked kings like Ahab and the disobedient generations of Israel. Just ask Rome. God's authority is no joke. And that's the example that Paul uses of the Israelites in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he says that these things were written for our admonition. And he says concerning the Israelites that died in the wilderness. He said, but with most of them, God was not well pleased. Those ought to be some scary words to hear. God being not well pleased. Is God well pleased with us? But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. This thing of authority is this. Your life is not your own. You belong to God. Therefore, serve the Lord. Paul tells them in 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Just as he told the Colossians, Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he asks them, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Proceeding that, in verse 15, he said, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Therefore, he tells them, We're not to be joined up with the false gods, the false people. We are told that 
he would dwell in us and walk among us and be our God and we would be his people. And therefore, because of that, he says, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not cut, uh, touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord. And so Paul is making these authoritative statements all the way through First and Second Corinthians. As he tells them in his second epistle, in chapter 5, For the love of Christ compels us, and because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. This is the authority of God upon those who claim to be his people. And that is the kind of Christianity that must be renewed and revived in 2013. A Christianity where we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him who died and rose again for us. The authority of God demands our complete submission. Our life is not our own. To live our life for ourselves is to live in Adam, which is to live for the devil. To live our life for God is to live in Christ as a servant of God. To believe in God is to believe in his authority. And so we have a choice to make. Are we going to live in rejection of God as our ruler, or are we going to submit to our ruler, Jesus Christ? Are we going to live our own way or in the faith of Jesus' death and resurrection? Are we going to live in chaos, consequences, and destruction because of our sin? Or are we going to live in forgiveness and holiness? Are we going to live our own way, facing death and judgment? Or are we going to live in God's new way of life everlasting? Jeremiah 6.16, this question was asked of Israel. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. That was a promise. The coming judgment that was coming upon Judah there in the book of Jeremiah. And the promise was, return back to me. God says, return back to me. And all this can be fixed. But you know what the response was by the people in Jeremiah's day? We will not walk in it. As a matter of fact, in chapter 18, they said, this is hopeless. So we'll walk according to our own plans and we will do everyone and we will everyone obey the dictates of his own heart. Later on, they would tell him, as for the word that you have spoken to us, Jeremiah, in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. And that's where we're at today. What's it going to be? Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, what we need is a radical discipleship 
a radical Christianity that Jesus taught and that Jesus demanded and that Jesus commands. Because whoever does not bear his cross and come after him cannot be his disciple. Jesus also says, Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus spoke many hard things and many hard truths. And in John chapter 6, it says that many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And Jesus turned to the twelve and he says, do you also want to go away? But Peter answered and said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. May that be our response. Father, we live in serious times, and we're being decimated at every hand. And Lord, we need your help. Lord, we pray that you would create and that you would grant true faith within us that produces action. To live in faith. to live in complete surrender to Jesus Christ, giving up everything to follow him. Whatever it is that through your will, that you would consider it well and good for us to lose for Christ's sake. May we be willing to follow Christ in absolute surrender, willing to lose everything. For the cause of Jesus Christ. Counting everything else but dung as Paul said. Give us that kind of faith. Revive that kind of Christianity. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.